Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you loved us so much that you came to this earth as a vulnerable baby. That you subjected yourself to pain, rejection, to crucifixion. And you knew this when you chose to come. And yet, you came. And yet, Father, you chose to give your life as a ransom for many. So this morning, Lord, we celebrate you. We worship you. Not just because of who you are and what you've done, but because you are truly the God of the universe. And you have saved us for all who've called upon the name of the Lord who've transferred their trust from their own works of righteousness, their own deeds, to what you have done on the cross. So we give you praise this morning. We give you thanks. And we invite you to open the eyes of our hearts this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. And Matthew 1 through 17 is... Uh, probably something you frequently use for your devotional time. It's the genealogy of Jesus. It's the, it's the passage that you look at and you just kind of skirt right over. You just kind of keep going. That's typically what people do with the genealogy and as they read verses 1 through 17. And, and I called the title of this sermon our Christmas family portrait because in fact that's what it is. It's, it's really a portrait of the ancestry of Jesus, of Jesus' family, so to speak. It's actually uh, more like a resume than what we would think of today as a family tree, because today we just don't put that much stock in the family tree. I mean, most of us really can't go past maybe our great, great grandparents. We don't know what their names were. Uh, we kind of kind of tail off at that point, not sure exactly where they were, or where they were at that point in history. What was their first name? Uh, not real sure. I, I think I, I think it was Gertie or I think it was Otis or whatever it is we think it was. But we just don't take it that far back today. But in the Hebrew culture, this was your resume. Today our resume is the job we had and where we've been to school. But the resume of the Jewish people, of the Hebrew culture, let me tell you what line I come from. Let me tell you about my ancestors. Let me tell you uh, where I have come from. And that was the resume that you really wanted to present. That's what really identified you as an individual. That's what really gave you credibility. And so that's exactly what Matthew is doing. He's showing that Jesus comes both from the Davidic line and the Abrahamic line. Okay, so it's it's a big deal to the Jews as they see this. And this is something that is actually falsifiable. When you see this lineage that's given here, it's something that could have been proven wrong. And up to 70 A.D., they kept pretty good records of everybody's genealogy in their family. Then in 70 A.D., when the, when, the, uh, when the Romans come in, and then it's finally completely wiped out by 72 A.D., those records pretty much were removed, and except for those of Jesus that we have. So it could have been proven false, but no one really ever did that. No one really ever took issue of where David came from. And then we see a genealogy here. Most scholars believe, uh, obviously it was from Joseph we see. And some would say that in Luke you'll see there's a variance uh, that that perhaps was Mary. And both of them go to the divinic line. But also, 
uh, you'll notice this is not an exhaustive list if you really study this. Not every name is given all the way back to Abraham. Uh, it seems that it was divided out into certain sections. And this was not uncommon that sometimes those who were most important you would leave in. Those who had the most notoriety. And, and then if there were some unsavory characters in your family like some of us have, you just kind of go, oh, you know, yeah, we don't really have a picture of them. Uh, <clears throat> don't really, I forgot about them. I, so, sometimes you would leave those out. But it's interesting what Matthew will do. He'll actually put some of the folks in there that you would never, as a good Jew, you would never, as someone trying to establish credibility, would leave in. And that's exactly what Matthew will do. Now, the family portrait. I actually just got through with another family portrait today, uh, and I wish I had that one to show you. But I'm going to show you last year's. This was our family portrait. I hope it doesn't cheese you out. Uh, and this was the one that we kind of used um, as our family portrait. And as you notice, I can't afford to buy clothes, and so I'm still wearing the same shirt. And, um, and, but you know, there was another picture we took before that that wasn't quite, you know, where for some reason I'm, I'm on a rocking chair or have, I don't know what my problem is. My son's looking off the gaze. My daughter has the expression that she normally has. And my life, wife looks great. But, so we take more pictures so we can get the right one. So then we go back to the other one and say, okay, that's about as good as we're going to do. So we're going to say, this is our portrait. All right. And incidentally, we don't send out Christmas cards if, in case you're wondering. I know some people wondered. The past, I never get a Christmas card from the pastor because we don't send them out. Uh, you know, because we decide if we send them some of you, you're going to get mad. And it's on that. So we just don't send any out. So we're just an equal. Uh, I don't want to say we're a Scrooge. We're just afraid. All right. And, and so we don't. But this year we're going to send out. Uh, we're going to send out a church one um, that will come through email. So make sure you get on our email list. Don't tell me you didn't get a Christmas card because my mother didn't get a Christmas card. OK, so nevertheless. Um, I don't even know why I felt the need to share that, but I thought I would with you. When we're looking at this text in Matthew chapter 1, we're seeing the Christmas family portrait that Matthew is giving to establish the credibility for everyone to understand this is who Jesus is. This is where he comes from. He does fulfill the prophecies that have been given. And this is the fact and this is the story that he's about to give. Now, in New York right now, there are there are billboards that are going up uh, that the the atheist organization has put up. Matter of fact, some of them may make it down here. They're uh, just seeing how much capital they have right now. But the American Atheist Society, this is the billboard uh, that, that there are several of these in New York now. It says, "You know, it's a myth. This is the season. Celebrate." Reason. We've, we've used the term before, Jesus, the reason for the season. But the real truth of it is, as we look at statistics, over 47% of children, when asked about Christmas, don't even mention the name of Jesus. There are a myriad of other reasons to celebrate Christmas, but somehow Jesus gets lost. Somehow the real, the real purpose and the original purpose has faded away. And now we live in a society where reason is the highest form of intellect. Reason. If you just stop and think about it, there's no way that story was true. There's no way all that occurred. That's, that's just a myth. Well, that's exactly why Matthew, and I think in God's sovereignty, said, let me give you a historical document. Let me give you a historical account of what is occurring here right up front. And let me give you the resume. Let me give you... The history. And matter of fact, Matthew is going to give us history that if I was making up a story, if I was making up a myth, this is not what I would do. This is not what I would share. This is not who I would include. 
Let's read together here in Matthew chapter one, beginning with verse one. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Right there, he connects with the two most important covenants to the Jewish people. Matthew being a Jew, is writing this primarily to a Jewish audience. Let me tell you, he's out of the genealogy of both David and Abraham. That's instant credibility. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, the liar, the guy who stole his birthright from Esau. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Right there, he's taken a hard left. Got you where you said Abraham, got you where you said David, but why would you mention Tamar? I mean, Judah's got his own issues, of course, but Tamar, first of all, women were not even recognized as credible witnesses in a court of law. So if they saw something happen, if you said something happened, he tried to bring a woman to prove it, it wasn't deemed as credible. And throughout much of the history, uh, particularly in the Jewish society, they were more often regarded as property to a great extent. So they weren't credible, so you wouldn't list them in the genealogy. Much less would you list a woman of questionable character. There are children here, so we won't go into the whole story. But if you'll remember the story of Judah and Tamar, Judah is actually her father-in-law. And her husband has died and she's trying to get herself taken care of. So she dresses herself up as a prostitute and yada, yada, yada. Uh, here we have here we have Tamar. OK, this is not something you'd want to go. By the way, I'm related to Tamar. It's not something you would do. But Matthew does it. It would be the equivalent of saying, I don't know if I told you, but my grandmother, she was a prostitute. <laughs> Got a picture right here. It's not what we do. In our culture today, or it's certainly not what they did in their culture at that time. If that's not enough, Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz. Hey, Boaz, that's a good guy. He's the guy that married Ruth, but his mother was Rahab. What? Rahab, the harlot? Here we go. We got this hooker theme going on here that Matthew keeps listing again. If I was going to make up a story, this is not what I would list for credibility purposes. This is not what I would do to prove, hey, you need to listen to me. You need to listen to me. You need to see me. Recognize who I am. It's neat. Matthew puts the good, the bad, and the very ugly. He lists it all here. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Well, Ruth, she's a decent woman, but she's a Moabite. Matter of fact, Rahab was a Canaanite. So now we're letting these foreigners, if I'm a good Jew, one of the things I want you to understand is, hey, we've got to keep this thing all in the family here. And they're bringing outsiders in. Matter of fact, we don't even allow them to worship in our temple. These Moabites and Canaanites, they've been out with, they're pagans. And Jesus is having, him, having them listed in his lineage here. And Jesse, the father of King David. All right, this is what I want to talk about. King David. The great king, our greatest king, David, that's who I'm affiliated with. But but Matthew doesn't stop there, as most would. What does Matthew do? He says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What? Uriah's wife? It's Bathsheba who we're talking about here. And what does he say? He lets, He reminds you what every Jew didn't want to be reminded of. 
and whom Bathsheba probably was a Gentile as well, because he was the wife of Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, not David's wife. You know, there are a lot of outsiders, a lot of foreigners, a lot of people of bad reputation, and we're just putting them out there. We're just going to let you know about all of them. You know, we've left out a couple of of neutral names, but we're going to insert these here. And it continues. It says, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Well, there's another guy, Rehoboam, whom the kingdom split under. Eh, Not our finest moment in history. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa, and Asa of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerom, and Jerom, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was a great guy, but he got too much of himself and decided that he would go into the holy temple and that he would produce incense and sacrifice there, even though it was forbidden. He was warned by the priest. He was asked to get out. And, of course, he contracts leprosy. Not another fine moment in Jewish history. Jotham, father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a pretty good dude. Father of Manasseh, not such a good dude. Matter of fact, the Bible says he was one of the most wicked kings that ever ruled in all of Israel. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, the brothers at that time of the exile to Babylon. We we see that part of the reason this may be divided, and you might see these in 14. Some scholars, if you'll notice, it's in 14, 14, 14. Some scholars say because um, if you look at the consonants in the Hebrew, the name David, actually 464 are the corresponding numbers in Hebrew. And so many think that there are, scholars think that that's the point, that they're pointing toward David, toward the Davidic line. That may be a possibility. They may be simply sections of history, whatever the case. Uh, we see it after, we see the pre-exilic and then we see the post-exilic time. And let's skip on down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. So we see that Joseph has a father. The husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Notice that it doesn't say Joseph here, begat. Matter of fact, in the Old English, uh, if you had an old King James Version, it would say begat. It doesn't say that. It says that he's the husband of Mary, uh, in, in essence, because he is the stepfather. Now, he would have legally, you still would have traced his line because he was the legal father. But we see that that's not the case, and we know if we continue to read, if we know the Christmas story of Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 2, because Mary is a virgin. Mary has a child, and so it wasn't in the lineage, it wasn't that the seed of Joseph brought about Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit. So what do we learn from this? What can we glean this morning as we look at this passage, this obscure passage that, I don't know, I've never heard a sermon on, and the passage that we most frequently just kind of pass over. Well, I think there are at least three aspects, three principles that we can glean as we think about this and we talk about this for a moment. Number one, that that Christmas is not just good advice, it's good news. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2. That behold, I bring you good news. It's the gospel. Christmas isn't just a great story. Christmas is true. There are a lot of great stories out there with great morals and great principles and great values to be taught. 
But a lot of them aren't true. Christmas is not only a great story, but it's a true story. And thirdly, God's grace is offered to everyone. Christmas is God's grace offered to everyone, regardless of where you are, where you've been, and who you are. So as we look at that, I think it's imperative that we remember that this is a true story, that this is the real thing. This is a story that if I was going to start it out, I wouldn't do it this way. You wouldn't do it this way. It's a story that looked like it's destined to fail. What do I mean by that? Well, most stories start off like this. Once upon a time, there was a great king. And in a palace, there was a boy or there was a a baby that was born. But that's not how this story starts at all, is it? First of all, the genealogy is given. The historical background is given. And then from there, we see a peasant girl, a a pregnant 14, 15, maybe 16-year-old girl of no account, is pregnant with a baby. And she comes to Bethlehem with her fiancé, and there's not enough room for her to be taken in the end, so so to speak, supposedly. And so she finds herself in a barn. And a baby, having birthed a child, will birth a child at night in a barn amongst the animals. You know, it's it's not a story that we would typically say, you know, this is a good beginning. This has got high credibility. This is the way it should be. But it's the news. It's not about advice. It's not like other religions where it starts off to inspire you with great advice and a great moment. No, Here's the difference. The Christmas story is a story of the good news. It's not advice. You see, advice is, you know what? There's something that may be occurring in the future. You might want to prepare for it. But news is there's something that's happening right now. Advice is get yourself ready. You better prepare. Matter of fact, you need to start being good. You better not pout. You better not cry. You know, as a matter of fact, I'm checking the list two or three times here. Getting ready. That's advice. News is it's already been accomplished. The debt's already been paid. It's not dependent upon your goodness. It's news, not advice. It's truth. And secondly, it's a true story, not just a good story. It's not simply a self-help mechanism. It's not something that starts off like this. Once upon a time, there was a child. That's the way we start fairy tales. That's the way we start myths. That's the way we start legends. But that's not how the Bible starts the story of Jesus. The historical documentation is given. It says, from the line of David and Abraham, it's falsifiable information that's given. It's not a once upon a time story. It's truth. It's historical. We're so used to stories that we hear that are good stories. They're nice stories. They tell us good more, teach us good morals and good values. They're neat. I mean, you think about it. You think about uh, Cinderella. And it's a poor girl who's trapped in a 
an abusive family who's rescued by a miracle, so to speak. Or we think of Sleeping Beauty. Or we think of Beauty and the Beast. That's one of my favorites. Beauty and the Beast. There's this wild, this guy's been turned into this wild animal. And the only way that he's going to get transformed is if some beautiful woman comes, kisses him, and falls in love with him and removes the curse. I mean, like, that's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, we know they're fairy tales. We know they're fantasies. But, you know, there's a part of those stories that we really resonate with because they're the truth of who we are. That there's a curse that's been placed upon mankind. Sin. And we are not capable of overcoming it ourselves. And we need someone from the outside, someone who is a great king, to come and save us and rescue us from the curse of sin and to remove that curse. And there's the story of Christmas. Matter of fact, if you take away the prophecy and the historical documentation, uh, the, the historical documentation of Jesus, if you take away the death, burial, and the resurrection, you take away Easter, what do you have with Christmas? I mean, it's not even really that great of a story. I mean, it's a little good story, but what does it teach you? What does Christmas teach you apart from the life of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, apart from the prophecy, if you just take this little season and just say, a baby was born. And this baby was born and there wasn't enough room for him in the end. And so they went to a barn. And he was born of a peasant woman and a peasant man. And wasn't that cute? What does that teach? There were shepherds who came and they assisted. And Mary had the baby outside. What does it teach you? That it'd be cool to be a shepherd? Does it teach you? What about... Um, childbirth in a barn? I mean, what is it that we're trying to think that's so great about Christmas if it's not true? If that's all there is? What is it that would not make me think it's simply a myth? And what is the value that it's teaching me if that's all there is? But you see, it is true. And because the baby is God in the flesh... It will change, literally, the course of history. It changes everything. This baby is capable and able and most powerful enough to remove the curse of sin and death that we have all been struck with. That, in fact, is what happens with Christmas. Christmas, it's God's grace to everyone. It's God's grace to those women and men who are on the outside. Those who were Gentiles. Those who had made mistakes. Those who weren't deemed worthy by society. It's God's gift to sinful people. To the harlot, to the hooker, to the sinner, to David the murderer, to Manasseh the wicked king. It's the grace of God extended to all who will come. So when I think about Christmas, here's what I know. It's not just advice. It's not advice about how you can be a better person, how you can adopt a set of moral ethics and be a better boy or a better girl or a better man or a better woman. That's not what it's about. It's not advice. It's news. It's fact. It's the news of salvation that God has come to earth in the flesh. Number two, it's not just a great story. It's true. 
It's historically true. And number three, that it's God's grace offered to everyone. If you feel like you're far away, if you feel like you've gone too far down the road to ever come back, if you feel like you don't know, you don't understand, you're an outsider. That's what the grace of Christmas is about. It's this fact. That God loved us so much that he humbled himself to the point of becoming the most vulnerable thing that exists on earth, a baby. Matter of fact, here's a picture we think some of the shepherds probably would have been boys, much like David was. And the truth is, God became the most innocent, the most pure, the most vulnerable creature that could exist on earth, a baby. And said, I love you so much that I'm going to take on the nature of mankind. I'm going to become man. I'm going to become human in the flesh. And he's going to live on this earth and live a perfect and sinless life. And then willingly die upon the cross and offer himself as a ransom, offer himself as a sacrifice. That's where Christmas goes. That's where the grace of Christmas heads. That's where Christmas begins. That God became a child so that you might have salvation. And that's the family portrait that we ought to see and we ought to remember when we think about Christmas. What about you? Are you a, are you a part of God's portrait today? Are you a part of God's family? Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, I pray if there's one that doesn't know you as Savior today, that you would draw them by the power of your Spirit. God, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would open our eyes to the wonderful miracle of Christmas, that God became flesh, that the good news has been given to us, that behold, this day a Savior has been born, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we celebrate because, Lord, of what you have done and because of who you are and Lord, I pray for those who feel like they're outsiders today, for those who feel like they are great sinners, for those who feel like they just don't know and they just don't understand. For those who've been away, Lord, I pray that you draw them by the power of your spirit, that they might receive of the grace that you offer this day. For those, Father, who struggle with, is this just a story that they would be compelled by the divine evidence that you have supplied? And that they be drawn by your spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time. In your name I pray. Amen.